Dr. Johnny King has a PhD in theology and religion from the prestigious University of Birmingham. He is the author of Spirit and Schism, A History of Oneness Pentecostalism in the Philippines. And he is also the pastor of Truth Church of Calgary, has been as of this month for 40 years. And I'm particularly honored because this is also my own pastor. Please welcome Dr. Johnny King. Thank you. Let's make a deal. I have the shortest presentation in your syllabus. I will not take 20 minutes. If you will not take 20 minutes, we can be at the restaurant in less than an hour. If you insist on asking questions, I might go eat. <laughs> I've been asked to present on the Ecclesia of God, the church. This presentation begins with the premise that those to whom it is given agree that the Ecclesia is the church. Space will not be given to establishing this commonly held belief. However, attention will be given to what that means as well as to whether or not a local assembly qualifies for the designation and what is essential for any individual, person, congregation, or organization to be part of the church. This examination recognizes the Bible as the only absolute authority at arriving at these conclusions. In this paper, the entire body of Christ shall be referred to as the church and local assemblies as such. What is the ecclesia of God? Transliterated from the Greek, the term ecclesia is used in the New Testament as well as the Septuagint to refer to those who are called out or an assembly which has been summoned. In Psalm 26.5, it refers to the congregation of evildoers. Similarly, in Acts 19.32 and 41, it is used of a riotous mob, some of whom were confused as to why they were there. In the same chapter, it is used to contrast the disorderly mob with a lawful assembly in Acts 19.39. Ecclesia was not originally used to define an assembly of Christians. It was a Koine Greek term that preexisted the church. As such, it could be used to refer to a lawful assembly or an unlawful one as seen above. It was used in Matthew 18, 17, probably speaking of the men who gathered at the synagogue to describe Jesus' teaching on dealing with issues between people. Quote, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the ecclesia. Almost universally today, the term church is applied to Christianity. 
and is understood as meaning the church as the Corpus Christi or a Christian denomination or a Christian assembly. In his epistles, Paul commonly used ecclesia to refer to a single assembly, group of assemblies, or the church as the complete body of Christ, such as the church which is his body, Ephesians 1.22 and 5.23. Appearing to refer to a single assembly, but possibly to more than one assembly within the same city, he wrote, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1-2. Unto the church of the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1-1 and 2 Thessalonians 1-1. And in the plural with references to churches in a district. Unto the churches of Galatia, Galatians 1-13. He uses, to the saints which are at Ephesus... In Ephesians 1.1, to the saints which are at Philippi in Philippians 1.1, and to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae in Colossians 1.2, showing some interchangeability between his use of church and saints, leaving us with an understanding that the church is made up of saints who have been called out and gathered together for the worship of God in Jesus Christ. In viewing the gathering together of Christians, one must not lose sight of the importance of the calling out. There must be a calling out. God's plan did not include using the Israelites within the political and social system of Egypt. Moses could not accomplish the Missio Dei from within Pharaoh's household. Neither could he use Egyptian methods to accomplish the divine purpose. He had to leave, depart, turn away from. This is closely related to repentance, which means to turn around or to change direction. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, 2 Corinthians 6.17. Separation was always God's plan for his people in relation to those who were not God's people. There must be a stark difference required and appreciated by God, acknowledged by self, and recognized by others. God's people are different. They are called out. There has always been, and there must always be, a distinct identity for the people of God. That identity is initially dependent upon separation. Israel was not called the church in Egypt, but the church in the wilderness, Acts 7.38. They were not the congregation until they obeyed the call to come out. But although identity is necessary, the calling out was not the goal. It was the process. Once Moses was out of Egypt long enough to get Egypt out of his system, he experienced vision at the burning bush. He received vision of God, vision of self, moderated by grace, 
and vision of the mission. Only then was he prepared to go back into Egypt entirely different than how he came out and only for the purpose of taking God's message and power of deliverance to those whom God had chosen. God did not deliver Israel from bondage just so they could go their own individual ways and become part of any other nation or of all nations. He delivered them so that they might become a nation unlike any other nation on the face of the earth. Their purpose was to demonstrate that there was only one God, not just a supreme God in a pantheon of other gods. Their purpose was that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 12:2. Israel became a church in the wilderness at Mount Sinai when God gave them their baptism of fire and the law written on stone. The law was their constitution. The day the law was given became a mandatory holiday known as the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot in the Hebrew. The Greek word used in the Septuagint to describe this is translated into the English Pentecost. This is the word used in Acts 2 to describe the day that the church was born, Pentecost. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 2, 1 through 4. The birth of the church occurred on the day of Pentecost, when those in the upper room were baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire. As Israel was born at the giving of the law, the church was born with the giving of the Spirit. The original 120 were the initial citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Like Israel was called out of Egypt and slavery, the New Testament church was called out of darkness and sin. They were not a people, but are now the people of God, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. They were recipients of the promise made to Abraham. As the Pentecostal experience spread to Samaria, Caesarea, Ephesus, and beyond, they were the beginning of the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Acts 8 Acts 10, Acts 19, Genesis 12, 3. While most of the suggested 500 million Pentecostals in the world believe that tongues is the evidence of Holy Spirit infilling, possibly only a quarter of those identify with the doctrinal content of Acts 2 rather than simply the first four verses. Evidentiary tongues... Tongues as evidence of Holy Spirit baptism has been until recently widely accepted among Pentecostals, even those who do not 
view spirit baptism as essential. Interestingly, as the Pentecostal charismatic genre of Christianity becomes more popular, there appears to be less emphasis on speaking in tongues. According to the Pew Forum report of 2006, 49% of those who identify as Pentecostals in the United States say they never speak or pray in tongues. Apostolic imperative. There is a stark difference between most apostolic Pentecostals and the general Pentecostal charismatic population when it comes to frequency of speaking in tongues. A recent survey in the Philippines shows a slight 2% of oneness Pentecostals who stated they have never spoken in tongues as opposed to 45% of Pentecostals and 65% of charismatics in the Philippines surveyed for the Pew Forum report. If figures were available, it is probable that similar differences would be found in other countries as well. The most probable reason for this difference is that most apostolic Pentecostals view spirit baptism the same as being born of the Spirit and thus as essential for salvation. Whereas most of the general Pentecostal charismatic population view spirit baptism as a separate and subsequent experience from being born of the Spirit or Spirit infilling. Therefore, believing in evidentiary tongues, as do most Pentecostals, and that Spirit baptism is part of the new birth, born of water and Spirit, John 3, 3 through 8, thus being essential for salvation, most apostolic Pentecostals could be considered essentialists in their view of spirit baptism evidenced by tongues. This is not the only apostolic imperative. As has already been mentioned above, most Pentecostals worldwide place great emphasis on the first four verses of Acts chapter 2 to validate their Pentecostal experience and identity. Verse 1 identifies the day as Pentecost and stresses unity. Verse 2 emphasizes the sudden nature of spirit infilling, and by the sound of a rushing mighty wind, ties Holy Spirit baptism directly to being born of the Spirit in John 3.8. This one thing that makes spirit baptism, this is one thing that makes spirit baptism an apostolic imperative. Verse 3 introduces fire, which was also present during the birth of Israel at the mount, and shows the Acts 2 experience to be the same as prophesied by John the Baptist in Matthew 3.11 and Luke 3.16. The fourth verse is the raison d'etre of Pentecostalism. It is the line of demarcation between the Old Testament and the New, between law and grace, between promise and fulfillment. It was the birth of the church and the beginning of the last days, it also shows that those in the upper room were all filled with the Holy Ghost. All 120, Acts 1.15, all the apostles, Acts 1.13, even Mary the mother of Jesus and his brethren, Acts 1.14. Furthermore, most Pentecostals will use Acts 2, 5 through 15 to justify exuberant worship which can be confusing to outsiders 
and is often the cause of mockery. They will use verses 16 to 21 to prove that Holy Spirit baptism was what was prophesied by the prophets, as in Joel 2, 27 to 32. In verses 22 to 36, Peter preaches the lordship of Jesus as the Christ. Verse 37 tells of the crowd's response to the preaching by asking the prime question, what shall we do? Lost humanity continues to ask the prime question. The question remains the same. So does the answer. The Pentecostal experience led to the Pentecostal message which provoked the prime question. The answer to the question, what shall we do, becomes the apostolic imperative. It is the plan of salvation. The Apostle Peter was the spokesman on the day of Pentecost, but the question was not asked of him alone. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter was not standing alone. Verse 14 states that he was standing up with the eleven. Thus, Peter's message and answer was not as though one man was speaking. It was as though all surviving apostles were preaching and answering. These were the identical men and the only men that were given the great commission of Matthew 28, 19. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 28, 16 to 19. When Peter answered the prime question on the day of Pentecost, he and the other apostles, without exception, gave the answer that they and only they understood as what Jesus directly instructed them and only them in what is known as the Great Commission. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Acts 2, 38, 39. To ignore the experience of Pentecost is to ignore the experience that birthed the church. To ignore the message of Pentecost is to ignore the message of the church. It is inconsistent to accept the experience and refuse the message. To be a Christian is to be Pentecostal in this sense of the word. To be Pentecostal is to embrace the experience and the message. To be Pentecostal is to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit as per Acts 2.4 and to obey the message 
of Acts 2, 38, 39. Without Pentecost, there is no birth of the church. Without Pentecost, there is no new birth. Without Pentecost, there is no church. If the Pentecostal experience is not the experience of the church, then there is no other experience that qualifies as the new birth. Everything else the apostles taught, including all that is written in the epistles, must be understood as building upon the foundational experience and doctrine of Pentecost. The world cries out the prime question, men and brethren, what shall we do? The church cries out the apostolic imperative, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is what the church is. This is what the church experiences. This is what the church preaches. Nothing else is the church. Thank you, Dr. King. As with the first session, we'll go from here into a time of questions, and we will entertain your questions. Again, we encourage your questions. Please, uh, as we mentioned earlier, please keep your questions uh, on topic to what has just been presented and address your questions to Dr. King, and I'm sure that he will have answers for you as hungry as he is. All right. You can raise your hands uh, if you have a question, and the microphone will come to you. Do we have any questions uh, right at the moment? I lost track of my, we've got a couple here, one right here at the front. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, <laughs> I have a dream. <laughs> Appreciate your presentation. Um, one additional scripture which I want to ask how you feel about that as it fits in Acts chapter 15 verse 8 where it says and God who knows if the heart gave them the Holy Ghost as well as we and often I've been using that as to the same degree to the same extent and in the same manner in other words that God was bearing witness to the condition of their heart. And uh, that is the, so I, you know, I'm, uh, that's the ultimate test of the condition of the heart is in the same manner, to the same extent, to the same degree where the evidence was speaking with other tongues, that's the evidence. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you, What's your feeling about including that in that? I know it's, it's not in your text here, which is very thorough and very well laid out. Uh, just the bearing witness, God bearing the witness. And whenever he accepts our sacrifice, he answers by fire. And that flickering is the, is the fire evidence to the condition of their heart. That's what I wanted to. 
ask about if, your thought. If I understand, if I understand the question correctly, uh, are you asking that when God gives someone the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking with other tongues, does that indicate God's approval of the condition of their heart? At the time that he gives them, right. It's the, it's the specific individual, the specific time, and yes, sir, so yes. Okay, so my, my answer to that would be when someone receives the gift of the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues, that indicates, I think, two things. First of all, it indicates repentance, which is, which is a, uh, a necessary ingredient, and it also indicates belief. They have faith. However, at that point, that does not mean that God says, I, I, I approve and this is the complete experience for you. Because when that same thing happened, when Peter was preaching to the household of Cornelius in Caesarea in Acts chapter 10, they began to speak with other tongues. They thus knew that they had received the Holy Ghost as well as we then Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as has been mentioned earlier, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will lead us or guide us into all truth. The unfilling of the Holy Ghost does not indicate that an individual has arrived at all truth. I think it indicates they've repented. I think it indicates they have faith. And it indicates that they are being led into all truth. There's an important part about being led. We are not being driven. We are not being forced. Which means you don't have to be led. You don't have to follow. When the Spirit of God comes, God fills you with the Holy Ghost. There is evidence of speaking in other tongues. If we follow, He will lead. But if we do not follow then we won't be led. So I think that that indicates hunger in the heart of an individual, repentance, and faith. But not necessarily that they have, that they have arrived at complete salvation. So the follow-up question to your response, would you accept that a, as conditions, as as part of conditions of the heart, a repentant that they believe and that they repent as, as conditions of the heart. I think, I think believing is essential. I think repentance is essential. And would you accept them as conditions of the heart? I'm not sure I understand what you mean by conditions of the heart. If they're unrepentant and if they don't believe their hearts are hardened like Jesus said oh, you have you your hearts yet hardened if they do believe that's a condition would you accept them as conditions of the heart or maybe the word condition is not the best word but it's ready for it's talking about the preparation of the heart in man you know I'm just saying you know and we try to prepare them to that point to meet the filling. Well, we often in the church refer to you must meet the filling condition. I guess that's what I'm saying. And so maybe not 
in your church, but in many churches they say God will fill you when you meet the filling condition. And Bishop G.T. Haywood said, if a person repeats, repents deep enough, they will receive the Holy Ghost in the water. And so I'm saying, so with those things, I'm saying repentance is a condition of the heart. It's not the one, as you say, going on to perfection or, or, or maturity in your walk, because uh, it's new birth and base, but at least it's a condition. As you explain it, yes. I, I think that, that repentance and belief or faith would be a condition of the heart. And in addition to that, I would say that's where grace comes in. We are saved by grace. Without the grace of God, we cannot arrive at a place where we repent or where we believe. We have that by grace. Thank you. Very good. All right. To the back, there's a question here, and then we'll come up to the front. Uh, Dr. King, I appreciated your presentation very much. Uh, for the sake of the listening audience, could you reconcile that we are to be called out from among them, and at the same time, we are in the world, but not of the world? Thank you. The, the first... Uh, meaning of the word church or ecclesia is to be called out. There, there is no gathering and no assembly that has not been called out. It, it was used originally uh, when, the, when in some of the Greek city-states there would be a calling out or a calling forth of the citizens to come together to make some decisions. They were called out of their homes. They were called away from their their fireplaces and, and from their families, they, they were called out, but also called together. It was an assembly. So you could say, and it has been uh, translated, that ecclesia or church is an assembly. Calling out means we have to come out of the world. We have been called out. We were not a people, but we become the people of God. Um, we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have become an assembly. We have become a gathering. We have become a church. We have been placed into the body of Christ. That is impossible without a calling out. And, uh, and so there has to be a calling out. But that's not the end. Part of that calling out is separation, which we often call holiness. That's not the end. We were not called out just to be separate. We were called out and we must be separate in order to proclaim the message. We have to show, shine forth light into the darkness. We cannot do that by being darkness, by blending in with the darkness. There is a stark difference. There must be a difference. And so the church is called out and called together for the purpose. There has to be a purpose. Our purpose is to wit be a witness of the truth to the world. Very good. Uh, coming up to the front over on this side. Brilliant exegesis, clear, concise, I loved it. 
There's only one other one that's as good, and that's in a book called Apostolic Theology. <laughs> there is a question I have, and I've asked it more than once and never gotten what I would consider a concise answer without variations. You use the sentence, thus being on page seven, starting on page six, thus being essential for salvation, most apostolic Pentecostals could be considered essentialist in their view of spirit baptism and the operative word here, evidenced by tongues. My question is this, one would think that the word evidence means that it has to be seen and observed by other people in order to be validated. How would you address the situation of those who do, in fact, speak in tongues, but they do it in their closet, in their car, in the privacy of their home? That's my question. My first answer would be that it wouldn't have to be seen by others to be evidence of infilling. It's evidence to that individual. When you speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gives the utterance, you know something has happened. You know something has happened. So uh, whether anyone else witnesses that or sees that or not, it is evidence of Spirit infilling. over uh, to this side here, and then we'll go to the back. I've uh, been trying to do a study on what the world is, and uh, being that you had said the called out ones and being called out of the world, can you define what the world is? And my, my study I, th I think it's primarily idolatry, but is there a, a better definition than just idolatry? When we speak of the world, we talk about, we talk about all of human existence outside of the kingdom of God. We speak of fallen humanity. We speak of, of, of a society in which God does not rule, and the laws of God are not followed. That's what we mean by the world. It is a system. It is a society. It is everything outside of the kingdom of God. That's what I mean by the world. Uh, I guess right to the back here. The mic is on its way. Thank you very much, Pastor, for your succinct presentation. Uh, my question is from Acts, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 from verse 22. And it's still in, um, in line with some previous questions that have been asked. We are in the world, but not in the world. Paul said to the weak, from verse 22, to the weak became I as a weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, 
that I might by all means save some. Please, I would like you to shed light on what does it mean for an apostolic preacher or person to become to the Jew, you become like the Jew, to the New Yorker, you become like a New Yorker, to somebody in Calgary, you become like a Calgarian. What does it really mean? Well, that question doesn't really pertain to this subject, I don't think, but I, I, think, I think the important thing to remember is this. The, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. When you love your neighbor, the Samaritan, the New Yorker, the Jew, the Greek, when you love your neighbor, that love can be seen and shown and felt in ways that does not compromise the gospel. We first love God. That is unchangeable. If your love for the world changes your love for God or in some way compromises your love for God, then you've got things topsy-turvy and mixed up. So how do we become all things to all people? We do it by loving them. Love shows. Love speaks. Love demonstrates. But never in a way that compromises your love for God. Him first. Him first. Continuing on the Ecclesia, uh, right at the very back. Dr. King, we just received a text question uh, from the listening audience that asks, what about those who believe in baptism in Jesus' name and speaking in tongues that wants enough to be saved? I don't understand the, the last part that you said. Just once, once is enough to be saved. Just speaking in tongues once is enough to be saved. First of all, why would anyone only want to do this one time? This, this is the most wonderful, thrilling, and exciting thing ever. And I, I think I would quote Brother Verbal Bean that says the, the doctrine or the teaching that you only have to speak in tongues one time and never have to renew that experience again is the twin sister of the doctrine of once saved, always saved, or eternal security. It's, you know, the, you can rightfully be, these are, these are called lowest common denominator questions. And uh, I, I always question where, where you're coming from when you ask a question like this, or is this essential for salvation, or is that essential for salvation, are you trying to justify a lifestyle? Are we trying to justify a failure somewhere on our part, or a coldness on our part? So, you know, I, I, 
I guess it would depend on how long you live after you talk in tongues. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live a whole long time. <laughs> a couple of questions right on the front row. Let's start over here. I'm very sorry to ask a question before lunch. This question was asked to me uh, last week by somebody I'm working with in Portland, and I have a general answer for him, but I feel like it's important enough. Can one Dr. King be within the church and not submit to a local body? So the term ecclesia refers to the general church, the body of Christ at large. It also refers to a local assembly. A local assembly is rightfully called a church. It is, it is very difficult. Again, why would one not want to be part of a, of a local body? Um, to, be, to be one member alone, one member is not a body. We are members in particular. One member does not make a body. Uh, are there situations? Is it possible? I suppose if someone were thrown into prison and, and not able to go to church anywhere, it would be extremely difficult, but I suppose that John on the Isle of Patmos was still part of the church. But he still got in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he was close to God. And these are extreme situations. Um, in, in our society, that question would almost be considered a hypothetical question. I don't like hypothetical questions. Um, and so I would tell somebody today, you need to be part of an assembly. It's extremely difficult, and I would say dangerous, unlikely that you can survive as part of the church without being part of a local assembly. All right. Thank you, Brother King. I want to refer to our good brother over here. He was asking how to define the world. And the Bible gives us such clear definition on, on the world. And he was mentioning idolatry, which, is, uh, which would be one main thing that we would want to abstain from. But um, the Bible gives us uh, scriptures, 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, says, We are of God, meaning the apostles, they are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. Hereby know we this, or, and he that does not hear God knoweth not us. Hereby knoweth we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so there's a spirit about the world that never coincides with the scriptures or truth. If you were to go to Ephesians chapter 2, you can look at, uh, it starts out, and now hath he made you, uh, uh, hath he quickened you who were dead in trespasses and sin. And in your Bible, it'll be in italics, the word quicken, which means alive. The world has never been made alive, and they're always against the church. 
but it's those that are in the church who have been made alive. They've been quickened. And, of course, then we get to verse 4, God who is rich in mercy, wherewith he loved us. Of course, God loves the world, but the world doesn't know him like we know him because they are in error in their teaching. They don't understand what we're teaching here today, what Dr. King is trying to tell us about the Holy Ghost. And so I hope that helps you. Anything that is uh, against the word of God would be considered the world. And the world's thinking there's a spirit about the world that is trying to uh, force its way against the church. We could go a lot, lot more scriptures, but uh, I had this question to me just this last week. I uh, was baptizing some people and people getting the Holy Ghost just this last week, but a lady in our church, brand new, and she uh, wanted the Holy Ghost very, very bad. And her question was to me, and I believe uh, the apostolic doctrine that you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name with the evidence of speaking in tongues. But she said, well, I feel like I have the Holy Ghost. And there were people before the church that the Bible mentions had the Holy Ghost. So her question was to me, if I was to die right now, I've been baptized in Jesus' name, but I haven't spoken in tongues, would I be saved? Because the Bible said they had the Holy Ghost before they spoke in tongues. And, of course, I encouraged her. She needs to try to speak in tongues. And that's you know, was evident after the church began. But what are your thoughts on that, Brother King? From the birth of the church, anyone who received the baptism of the Holy Ghost spake in tongues. Before that, the Spirit of God moved on people. It was said that they were filled with the Spirit or moved by the Spirit. But the church was born on the day of Pentecost. This is when we entered into the church age. From that moment, Everyone who received the gift of the Holy Ghost spake with tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. And, and to be born of the Spirit and to be born of water is an essential requirement called the new birth. This is what it means to be born in the church. Okay, right at the very back center here. Yeah, the scripture says uh, in the Bible, it says, for the kingdom of God is within you. And the Bible says, also says that the kingdom, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Now, could you, could, could you uh, give me more information on, on those two scriptures, please? This was Jesus speaking before the church. This is Jesus teaching during the gospel era. So it's during his lifetime ministry. He's speaking to the Jewish people. He's talking to them about, about their obedience uh, to what they know about God. And, and even today, even today, those of us who have been... And, and Jesus also taught, you cannot see the kingdom of God without being born again. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God without being born of the water and of the Spirit. So, the kingdom of God was not him coming riding on a white horse. The kingdom of God is spiritual, but having said that, it is more real than anything you can see. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. 
but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So right now, we don't see the kingdom of God, but we don't see the eternal. We, we, our eyes are natural. And unless God opens our eyes, all we, can, all we have is, is the spiritual. But where it is still more real, the kingdom of God is more real, it is more lasting, it is eternal, whereas what we are in and surrounded by and what we can see with our natural eyes will all pass away. So uh, we want the kingdom of God to come in fullness. We have, we have entered into the kingdom of God through the new birth. We are in the kingdom of God. Yes, the kingdom of God is within us when we've, when we've been filled with the Spirit, and we are in it when we've been born of the water and of the Spirit, but we're praying, Thy kingdom come and Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So heaven, of course, not being, not being somewhere way out there, but it's here. It's the kingdom of God. It's invisible. This is the, you know, we are in the kingdom of God, but we cannot see the fullness. We're, we're right now looking through a glass darkly, but one day we shall see and we shall know even as we are known. A few more questions. We've got a couple at the back. We'll start over here. Okay, so this came to me. As the called out ones, does an individual have to leave their current denomination and become a Pentecostal? Come out from among them would refer to leaving anybody who does not believe truth. There must be a coming out. We have, we have no record of any Israelite remaining in Egypt and being part of the church, the congregation. There must be a calling out. Um, another question um, on the opposite side here. So my question is this. Is there any other evidence of Holy Ghost infilling besides speaking in tongues? The reason I ask is Paul includes speaking in tongues uh, with several other similar type items in 1 Corinthians 12. And so I was curious on your take on that. Thank you. That's a good question. In, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul dealt with tongues, he dealt with it as one of the gifts of the Spirit, of which he mentions nine gifts of the Spirit. And in that place, he mentions tongues and interpretation of tongues. When tongues is used as one of the gifts of the Spirit, it always requires an interpretation. And Paul said, don't even do it if there's no interpreter present. He was dealing with the gift of tongues as one of the gifts, plural, of the Spirit. But when tongues came as a evidence, evidence of infilling of the Spirit, as the, as the Spirit gives the utterance, 
then there was no interpretation given in Acts 2, in Acts 8, in Acts 10, in Acts 19. They spake with tongues uh, in Acts 2, 10, and 19, and strongly implied in Acts 8, but there was no interpretation. So when one receives the gift of the Holy Ghost, tongues is the universal sign. Now, there have been other signs, such as in Acts 2, there was fire. Uh, in Acts 19, they prophesied as well as spake in tongues. So there have been other signs in addition, but never another sign in replacement. So there was always speaking in tongues, but it's different than his teaching in 1 Corinthians because there was no interpretation required. Okay, and are there any further questions? We have to take this one. Thank you. Excellent job, Dr. King. For all of those listening on Holy Ghost Radio, my name is Kenneth Bowe, and I am <clears throat> old friends with Dr. King. Back to our uh, teenage years. I am the one that ran and jumped tried to get in the car, and Dr. King got in the car in front of me and locked the door and left me out with the bears. So that's for all of you that <clears throat> know the story. <clears throat> I wanted to uh, ask you to comment on an addendum uh, to your paper, if you would, please. Uh, when Jesus was nearing the end of his earthly ministry, as we all know, he went north into the regions of Caesarea Philippi, and he took his disciples with him, and it was there that he confirmed that the years that he had been teaching and preaching to them was going to bring forth the fruit he so desired. Now, it was at that interim, <clears throat> during a six-day sojourn, outside the country, the only time Jesus left the country was, uh, he said, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And it was at that moment when Simon Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response to them was, Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. So this concept of ecclesia is the, is the building of Jesus Christ. It's not just a local church. It's not just, there's many things. It's a multifaceted concept. But it is, in its end result, it is the building of Jesus Christ. It entails this kingdom of God concept that is coming. It entails everything that we've discussed here. But my Final question to you, and would like for you to elaborate just in conclusion today. Would you just kind of define that big picture of the Ecclesia, not from the inception, not from the beginning point that we all must experience to be brought into it, which is the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but the final product of the Ecclesia that Jesus sought to establish on the earth? I believe the final product of the Ecclesia is the universal church. This is where the term Catholic comes from. They're trying, to, they're trying to describe the entire church, the universal church, or the body of Christ, the Corpus Christi. The end, the end view is all of those who have been born into the kingdom of God thus added to the body of Christ as members in particular of every nation, every race, every color, every tongue, 
as members of one and the same body, of which Jesus Christ is the only head. This is the only thing. This picture is the only thing that we find in the Word of God that is saved, that will be saved, and that will spend eternity with Him forever and ever as His body, His bride, His church, and that in the ages to come, eternal ages, He's going to show the riches of His power and His majesty and His creation in the grace that He has shown to these men and women and boys and girls from every race and every tongue and every nation and every color that, has, that have come out of darkness into this marvelous light. Thank you, Dr. King.